Hello, this is the audio version of the Better Strangers article for Wednesday, April uh, something. Uh, I'm trying to do the math in my head. Mid-April. Sorry, guys, I'm not on my best this morning. Uh, The name of the article this morning is Fuck Thanos and the Avengers, and it's written and read by me, Matt Hirschberger. Uh, This is an environmental argument against the false choice between billionaires and uh, the eco-fascist finger-snappers. So, uh, yeah, there's another one which I mentioned Thanos. I promise I'm not going to do Thanos every week. I just kind of, while I was recording this for the last week's article, I kind of started on a tear about Thanos, and then I realized I could probably get another article out of this. So I promise it's not all Thanos-themed content, so I do apologize. Um, Anyway, this is the article. In last week's column about how misanthropy is a choice, I mentioned the existence of a subreddit page called Thanos Did Nothing Wrong, in which hundreds of thousands of people joined and enthusiastically agreed with the genocidal villain from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It occurred to me that Thanos vs. the Avengers actually nicely illustrates the two popular and most catastrophic approaches to climate change and ecological collapse in the modern world. Thanos, if you haven't seen the movies, spends several films acquiring immensely powerful Infinity Stones, which enable him to snap his fingers and kill half of all living things in the universe. He does this because he believes that overpopulation leads to suffering, and that by killing half of all living things, he is bringing balance back to the universe's ecosystems. Thanos is opposed and eventually defeated by the Avengers, the alliance of Marvel superheroes that the film series centers around. The Avengers, it's worth noting, are about as problematic as Thanos is. They have two core leaders. One, Tony Stark, is a billionaire arms manufacturer who develops an AI which attempts to exterminate all human life. And the other, Captain America, is a super soldier developed by the American military-industrial complex who violently resists global attempts to regulate his ability to act with impunity. When looking at the problems with how humans are approaching climate change, Thanos and the Avengers pretty perfectly embody our two worst approaches. Thanos is a perfect example of the eco-fascist approach to environmentalism, and the Avengers are the perfect embodiment of the progress approach. So let's dig in, shall we? The Thanos Approach, Paul Ehrlich and Third World Sterilization. In the 1960s and 70s, it started to become undeniable to those paying attention that humanity's ongoing industrialization and economic growth was having negative effects on the global environment. In 1968, the biologist Paul Ehrlich published what was probably the second most influential, behind Silent Spring, science book of the 1960s, The Population Bomb. In it, Ehrlich argued that a human population growth was proceeding far too rapidly and in the, that in the coming decades, the world, the world would see catastrophic levels of famine with hundreds of millions dying globally. The solution, Ehrlich argued, was for governments to undertake drastic efforts to try and curb population growth as quickly as possible. To do so, he advocated for widely available contraceptives, public sex education, and universal access to abortion. So far, so, v- so good. He also argued that governments should add temporary sterilants to the public water supply, cut off food aid to countries undergoing famine, and only offer financial aid to countries that mandated sterilization for men with over three kids. So, you know, not so good. Ehrlich was a charismatic speaker, and over time his ideas became in vogue among a certain set of the global elites, and some countries aggressively, even coercively, pursued Ehrlich's recommendations. This meant that many poor countries forced women to abort pregnancies that they did not wish to terminate, and that in others, men were forcibly sterilized. 
The problem, if it isn't blazingly horrifically obvious, is that this population control campaign is effectively genocidal against poorer, less developed countries in the global south which also happens to be non-European, non-white countries. This is what has come to be dubbed as eco-fascism, and it's alarmingly high in the white American environmentalist community. These countries also happen to be the ones that are the least responsible for the pressures being placed on the global environment. In another blockbuster 1972 book, The Limits to Growth, the argument was made that the Earth could not sustain endless population and economic growth. The argument sensibly being that the planet with finite resources cannot sustain infinite growth, or, as the environmentalist Edward Abbey put it, growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. The distinction is an important one because while Ehrlich wasn't wrong that Earth can't sustain an infinite number of humans, that population growth is also tied closely to the economic growth that has come with the spread of both global industrialization and global capitalism. And the blame for the economic direction that the Earth has taken over the past couple of centuries lies squarely on the shoulders of the people in the global north. Who the population doomers simply weren't interested in targeting because they didn't have as many babies. What's so silly about the Ehrlich-Thanos approach to environmental problems is that it punishes a whole lot of people slash life forms that quite simply aren't to blame for the pressures placed on the environment. The Thanos snap is ridiculous because his snap destroyed half of all life in the universe. One of the number one signs of a healthy ecosystem is abundant, diverse life. What puts pressure on it is when one species begins destroying all other species, and they harvest, mine, and extract more than they put in, and they drive other species to extinction. Likewise, it's not humans that are the disease in Ehrlich's calculation. It's the economic and political system which treats nature as something to be exploited and dominated rather than lived within. The proof for this is that large swaths of humanity have managed to live sustainably for hundreds of thousands of years. This current global system, which began in earnest with the Industrial Revolution two centuries ago, just happens to exactly coincide with our global growth problems. What's more, population in a society in decline tends to correct itself. The writer John Michael Greer points this out in his book, The Long Descent. Russia is a good, this is the quote, Russia is a good model here. Since the collapse of communism, it's seen rising death rates and falling birth rates to such an extent that the population will be cut in half by 2100, and yet there hasn't been any massive catastrophe to account for this. Simply shifts in statistics driven by economic and political failure. Uh, I actually quoted, I did the whole article that kind of talks about that is um, uh, last Friday's um, podcast, if you want to listen to that. Given that economic and political failure have already led to massive, a massive drop in birth rates among millennials, it's possible that we could stop worrying so much about sterilizing the quote-unquote breeders and instead start formulating economic systems that bring us back into harmony with nature. Uh, just I had a footnote that I couldn't quite shoehorn in there, but um, the, the kind of Thanos-Ehrlich thing is actually a very, very old way of thinking that's probably best known uh, being attributed to the British philosopher Thomas Malthus, who basically said we shouldn't have a... Um, uh, a welfare state because we should just let the poor die. Uh, the most famous fictional representative of this viewpoint is Ebenezer, Ebenezer Scrooge before he goes through the whole change and everything. Um, it's been roundly criticized for years, but the the elite have always argued against you know just the mass murder of um, people that they don't consider to be important. So uh, that's the side note. Anyway, part two: the Avengers approach: do nothing and leave it to the supermen. There's a second approach to climate that is also based on dangerous fantasy, and it's nicely represented by the Avengers. The Avengers, like all superheroes, are ubermenschen. 
The Ubermensch was a Nietzschean idea about a certain type of man who would evolve beyond normal mankind and thus would be above normal human morality. This idea appealed to the Nazis, who decided that they were the more evolved man and that they could treat everyone else as subhuman. Superman, the very first superhero, whose name is just a translation of the, Germ the German word Ubermensch, was an attempt at subverting these ideas made by two 18-year-old Jewish kids from Cleveland. What if, they asked, this superhuman, instead of treating other people like chattel, used their powers for good, for truth, justice, and the American way? The problem is that after the initial subversion, the writers behind superheroes largely ignored the general problem with the Ubermensch ideology and instead embraced it. Their heroes were billionaires, genius scientists, and literal mutants who have evolved past normal humans. Uh, another footnote here, um, the writer Alan Moore did a uh, did a whole short story called What We Can Know About Thunderman, which is a parody of kind of the history of comics. And in it, the guy who's supposed to play Stan Lee kind of in his story gets uh, pulled aside by the CIA, and they argue that he should create the Fantastic Four and the Incredible Hulk um, as ways of making radiation poisoning more palatable to the, the general public. Like, instead of all your hair falling out and you dying, uh, you can turn into a superhero who can do all sorts of cool things and who can smash buildings. Um, anyway, that was kind of his jab at Stanley. But anyway. Because of these abilities, the heroes were largely allowed in their universes to be above the law, acting as vigilantes and, frequently, and they frequently served right-wing causes, allying with the police to fill prisons with incurable criminals and with the American military-industrial complex. In this universe, the solution to all problems comes from innovation and genius. The thousands, if not millions, who are killed when the superhumans fight, whether it's Superman versus Zod in Metropolis, Batman versus Joker in Gotham, or Ozymandias versus New York City in Watchmen. That last one, by the way, is actually a critique of the whole Ubermensch um, approach to, to superheroes uh, and is worth reading um, if, you, if you haven't yet. All the people who are killed in these situations are inconsequential. They are narrative devices and side characters in a story about battling gods. These narratives rarely countenance the idea of these superhumans exercising restraint, and when they do, the idea is eventually discounted as the reluctant hero is called back into battle. This, obviously, is the approach most Americans have decided to take in regards to problems around the climate. Leave it to the smart people to save us. The idea is that if we allow the geniuses to innovate enough, we can find solutions to climate that will allow us to not change our extractive economy. Of course, many of the people that our country has chosen as its titans are either vainglorious morons in the case of, say, Elon Musk, or are genuinely evil in the case of Donald Trump and Peter Thiel, and have no interest in, our, in the lives of lowly regular human beings such as ourselves. Their ideas, usually, are either to leave us all to die on this planet while they flee to Mars, to, en to engage in risky geoengineering projects to correct the negative effects of climate change by, among other things, turning the blue sky white, or to build fortresses for the rich and slums for everyone else. So there's a third way. It's humility. The uniting thread in both of these approaches to dealing with our current massive problems around the climate is just a staggering lack of humility. In each scenario, certain special people take on the responsibility for fixing the planet, and in doing so, condemn millions of people of their choosing to death. But in order to adapt to and mitigate the worst effects of climate change, we're going to need much more than certain special individuals. We're going to need entire communities that work together to figure out problems and which can quickly adapt and change course as needed. This means people will need to put their egos at the door and focus on solutions rather than either becoming or submitting to the saviors. 
It's worth noting that if we're talking about the type of dynamic community that can respond to climate change, we're not talking about communism, at least not in the sense that it was applied in much of the world in the 20th century. New ideas, dissent, and the ability to abandon systems that haven't been working are vital for any future our society has, which means that we'll have to build something much more democratic than we have even now in the United States, let alone the Soviet Union. Regardless, our future's challenges will be immense, and we need all hands on deck. We can't just leave it to the heroes and villains who we can't even trust to keep our best interests at heart. Uh, That is it for this week. Make sure you subscribe. Um, I've got links to the books I mentioned in the article. Uh, So talk to you guys soon.